Welcome to TechTastic, the podcast that explores the cutting-edge world of technology and its impact on society. New breakthroughs and developments are revolutionizing the world around us, presenting exciting opportunities as well as complex challenges. We'll explore the big ideas and key players driving these transformations as we seek to understand the implications of these advancements for our lives, our communities, and our planet. Join us on this journey of discovery and exploration as we navigate the fascinating and ever-evolving world of technology. This is TechTastic. Nick, welcome to It's TechTastic. It's lovely to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited about the topic. Cybersecurity is very important. A lot of large companies are at tremendous risk and have been. And I think AI ratchets up that risk in a very real and I think very obvious to some people way, but even I don't really know what it looks like. Why don't you walk the audience through what's the impact of AI on cybersecurity and where's this headed? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's honestly a really good question. But I think you have to take a step back before cybersecurity when you're talking about the impact that artificial intelligence is going to have on business. Because if you're looking at this longitudinally, we've got a lot of things society wide that essentially dovetail with this and artificial intelligence and automation that is backed by artificial intelligence, I think is one of those things that is going to be a huge game changer. So recently, Goldman Sachs put out saying 300 million jobs are going to be affected by this with about 30 million people losing their jobs. Other reports, one by IBM says that we're going to have about 40 million workers being displaced primarily because other workers coming up in the workforce are learning and adopting artificial intelligence while the older workforce is not. So you have to understand, I think, from that point of view that we've got potential issues with this in terms of we have a growing population. We're not stopping having babies, right? And <laughs> and so how is this going to look in the long term? But also, how does this look in the long term in terms of things like socialization for the younger kids. So for example, let's say you have a 16 year old and that 16 year old can't go to McDonald's and get a job because now every time I talk to the drive-through, it's an artificial intelligence and a robot is making my Big Mac. Well, how are we now socializing that 16 year old to enter a workforce, you know, and part of the job like that doesn't have anything to do with the crappy paycheck. It has everything to do with how you deal with like drunk customers at 2 a.m., how you deal with a boss that's a jerk or a good one, right? So there's a lot that goes into this as we are moving forward. Now, as it relates to cybersecurity, we've been leveraging machine learning and deep learning models for quite some time in threat detection systems, endpoint detection response, firewalls, et cetera, et cetera, not to mention the analyzation of the massive amount of output that we have with logging and all of that. So we're letting the AIs sift through the noise because we would never hire somebody to spend 10 hours a day just reading logs. Nobody would take that job if they would anyway. So we've been leveraging it for quite some time. But what we are walking into, I think, in the last, you know, let's say six months to a year or so where we've really just started to adopt this society wide is generative AI, is large language models. And there is pluses and minuses to that. So for example, uh, approaching problem solving is one of those things where we tend to be set in our ways. I can think back to like, you know, when I'm a kid and my father is trying to teach me how to do math because I'm struggling in math or something like that. And I know it one way because I'm being taught that way. And my father knows it a different way and we can't come to a consensus. Well, I can go to a chat 
ChatGPT and say, hey, give me 10 different ways to correctly solve this problem. And now I have the ability to pick and choose which one is easiest to me and therefore I learn. And so as we are adapting that and adopting that into businesses and society, I think that is an important thing. And as it relates to cybersecurity, what that means is that we are going to be coming up with approaches for things like encryption systems, uh, you know, identification of behaviors on computers that indicate infection or not uh, in ways that we just haven't previously considered. Basically, traditional techniques for cybersecurity are going to go by the wayside. And so I think that's an important one. Conversely, the other side of it is as we are building large language models across the entire world and we're using them, we're also trying to put limits on them. For example, you go to ChatGPT and say, hey, write me a legal document. ChatGPT says, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm not an attorney, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We're putting in filters. But do you think the threat actors are going to do that? Do you think the intelligence agencies not. are going to do that? Not. Right. So yeah. it's kind of the landscape that we're walking into to right now. And I think while there's a lot unknown, what I do believe is going to happen is we're going to evolve defensive systems quite well and quite efficiently in the next few years. But we're also going to see a lot of offensive systems, malicious or otherwise, being developed. And it's going to be that, once again, cat and mouse game. It's just out of our brains and more into the virtual brains, if you will. Yeah. I mean, the biggest threat surface in most organizations is the humans and Always. social engineering, right? Always. And all of a sudden we have these tools that allow you to create a video avatar of anybody. If you have a photograph, right. you can generate it of an individual. Right. You can copy their voice. I actually have a version of my own voice I use occasionally for like, somebody pays me to do an ad and I'll just type it up and let it do it so I don't have to think about it. Right. So now we have tools that can make it very, very easy for a, a bad actor to social engineer in right. ways that are astounding, right? right? The cat and mouse game on that front, how do we even begin to protect our organizations and our people from that type of malicious act? Right. Well, once again, too, I mean, that is a subset of the overarching backdrop that we are seeing in society. I'm, I'm assuming you're in the United States, just given your act oh, yeah. as well, as am I, right? Yeah. So <laughs> you, you know that essentially in the last at least five to 10 years, politics has been a contact sport. Yeah. We are seeing what happens when trust breaks down in society between two opposing political parties and driving a wedge in that, thanks to artificial intelligence, is going to be much easier. One of the biggest problems I think that we're going to have is we're going to start losing our sense of reality. Uh, and that is essentially where we're dovetailing it. Now, think about this. You're a foreign intelligence agency. You've got your own generative AI. You're running a disinformation campaign and you're basically putting out deep fake videos, deep fake audio. But your generative AI is also creating a thousand websites, writing a thousand different articles, reinforcing that that video that shows the, the next presidential candidate, now I'm not going to name names, you know, is eating babies 20 years ago or whatever it is, right? <laughs> and, and now what you've got is a multifold problem because you have people that have confirmation bias that already hate that candidate that are like, yeah, he's a baby eater. Of course he's a baby eater, right? And then you're going to have a whole bunch of articles that kind of reinforce like fake evidence and all of this. So you're that whole out or you're that person on the opposite side that says, no, I don't think that sounds right. Now what you have, especially if you're posting that publicly on Twitter or X or whatever they're going to call themselves next week, you know, you've got a big problem because all the AI speak like human, they write like humans. And so you've got like, you know, Sally from California saying, no, you're absolutely wrong. And Bob from Maine saying, you're absolutely wrong. And here's an article and here's a different article. You start to question yourself.
And so when we are looking at this from a deep fake standpoint, that is a huge problem, not just in disinformation campaigns, but when we are targeting things like business email compromise scams, we're going way above and beyond that. Because imagine picking mm -hmm. up a phone or getting on a Zoom or whatever it is, and the CEO is there saying, yeah, the deal's done, move $10 million to China because we just spun up a plant or whatever it is. And so there has to be mechanisms in place. And what when I'm talking with audiences or advising clients on these kinds of things, then what we are looking at is transactionally validating using humans to do that. For example, let's say you and I work together, Christian, you're my boss, mm -hmm. and you come to me and say, Nick, I need you to move $50,000 because you know we're doing XYZ project for infrastructure. I'll say, great, that $50,000 is basically a threshold. I've met you in person ahead of time offline because obviously if our online is being tracked in some way, shape or form, email, Slack, you name it, we've met in person and you've said, Nick, if we ever have to move money, we're gonna use a one-time code and that code is gonna be pineapple, whatever it is. So you say, you come to me, you're yeah. deep fake, come to me and say, hey, I need you, you know, I need you to move money. Great, what's the code? You don't know the code, you know, and the code's not gonna be related to it. And we're gonna use it one time because if this is being monitored, you know, and the next one's not gonna be pineapple or another fruit because they're gonna try every other fruit. Next one will be Volkswagen or whatever it is, right? And so so that is, I think, the only way that we have right now to really combat that. I actually just did like a recent video and I'm gonna talk about it on my radio show about how basically like the detection systems like that are supposed to detect AI writing don't work. They just don't work. Mm -hmm. They're based on a yeah, concept yeah. called perplexity. And quite frankly, we're we're all over the map with that. And so we have a lot of students as a perfect example, as just a portents for the future that are getting in trouble for using AI when they're not. And there are plenty of students that are, don't get me wrong. I mean, if that mm. stoner kid in the back is suddenly a brilliant <laughs> scholar on seventh century poets, that dude is using Chad GPT, <laughs> right? So there is a balance that has to be made. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that we're gonna have is that we are not training. And when I'm talking about cyber defense strategies, the actual products and tactics to deploy in a company, the very first thing I talk about is training. So I like to say I can build you a Ferrari's worth of a cyber defense strategy, but if I'm turning the keys of the Ferrari over to a chimpanzee, how far are we going to get? We have to learn how to drive, right? <laughs> and so here we are. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a huge problem. It is. And, and the, one of the things that you brought up, the first word that popped in my head is, oh, spycraft. Yeah. All of a sudden, like all the pieces you think of in that, the compartmentalization of information, the online, offline boundary separations. Yeah. It's all part of it, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's nonstop, too. And it's going to continue to improve. And that's one of those things that we're just seeing. So if it can be leveraged by kids that create crazy filters for Instagram or whatever replaces Instagram, there's no reason why Russian intelligence couldn't use it either. So this is, I think, one of the biggest issues. But at the end of the day, what we're talking about is losing our reality. And that is, I think, one of the biggest things we're gonna have to talk about society-wide. Yeah, it's it's even a tough one to start delving into because it's like the entire world's being gaslit yeah. on every topic. Constantly. Right. And traditional news media, meaning those that have to go through a gauntlet of editors and fact check, they're 24 to 48 hours behind that deep fake video. And so while 50 million people think that presidential candidate is eating babies 20 years ago, 24 hours later, it basically it's proven fake 
you're still going to get people that are not going to get that correction, that retraction, that change or understand it, or because of confirmation bias, still believe he's a baby eater. So we have a problem with that. And I think that translates directly into the workplace because people will swear up and down. I swear to God, I talked to my boss and my boss told me to do this, you know, and, and here we are, right? So maybe it behooves us to record all those Zoom calls at work now too, just as evidence for forensics, you know? I mean, we'll see. Just the implications of some of that, as you were saying, I was like, yeah. because it's worse than the 24 hour delay that now there's 50 other videos of different incidents. Oh yeah, nonstop, nonstop. You can't possibly it keep up. And, and this actually gets no, the, the regulation side too, like EU starting to talk about uh, regulation on AI, so is the United States. Sure. Now you run into the problem of asymmetry in the global industry when you do that, because you can have bad actors anywhere in the world, doesn't matter if they're in the United States, right? Right. Uh, right. So you have that issue. And at the same time, like even by the time that they come up with regulations and start to enforce them, the enforcement would happen long after the impact of it. And right. And the technology oh, yeah. is moving too fast to even do the regulation in the yeah. first place. I mean, think about the United States. You know, we are behind in privacy laws. Oh, yeah. Europe took GDPR, years to build the GDPR. Yeah. Australia's got better, you know. So like if you look at the global landscape, I mean, and part of it is congressional gridlock. We can't get things through because everything has to be a debate and everything has to be torn down before, you know, there's bipartisan. That said, we have seen bipartisan movement on cybersecurity initiatives in the United States, and those were badly needed under like the last three presidents. So I'm glad that those are getting pushed through, but to put it exactly that point. And on top of that, though, also, do those really apply to intelligence agencies as well? Because they tend to apply to consumers. They tend to apply to businesses and users and all of that. And so we are walking into this landscape that is moving fast and everybody's being reactive about it. And by everybody, I mean the governments of the world because governments tend to react. Yeah. You know, if you're not living in an authoritarian regime where you can pivot on a dime, there's going to be a debate. And that debate just means time, you know, and here we are. Yeah. I've had some anxiety over this topic. One I wanted to talk to you about it is uh, I just don't see a way to grab on and really affect change in a positive, global impacting way rapidly. It's going to take all of us concerted moving forward to try and head off as much as this and try to create safety around it. And it's a constantly yeah. evolving space. So mm -hmm. if I was listening to this and I, and I wanted hope, how could I get involved? What might I start doing? Drink. Just drinking sounds <laughs> pretty good right now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you got scotch, right? No, um, I think part of it is just driving awareness. One of the things that the internet has taught us is that stabilizing the more extreme elements of society is a significantly more difficult. Uh, think about it this way. On my radio show, I interviewed one of the leaders, current leaders of the Flat Earth Movement, right? <laughs> now, now these guys are fun, only in the sense that you're looking at it and you're just shaking your head, like really Flat Earth. But the whole premise for me interviewing him wasn't for him to spread his message on why the Earth is actually flat and not round. It was basically to say that if the internet didn't exist, you'd be like three guys in a newsletter. Because what happened back in like the 70s when they tried to revive this, you didn't have people around you physically. You could not communicate over something like the internet. And so everybody around you, your spouse, your kids, your cousin, the the all the neighbors at the local barbecue would be like, dude, what are you talking about? You know, there's that pressure to kind of stabilize that. And so the numbers can't grow. But when you have like-minded communities that are saying, keep the faith, it's absolutely flat. Or we have a same problem with mass shooters where, you know, 
know, they're they're yeah. critiquing each other and encouraging each other. It's the same with racism and all of these other negative elements that essentially the internet brought together in some way, shape, or form. And so the only combat that I see against that, other than like let's say severe regulation, and I'm not really for that, only in the sense that we should not be writing laws to the lowest common denominators is for us to collectively just understand that, hey, while we used to put physical pressure on people because just by virtue of geography, now we have to put pressure on people to say like, no, this this isn't right. We have to put pressure on our politicians. We have to basically make aware. But I think the best thing that just any user can do, because most people listening to this are probably not members of Congress, right? What we have to do, I think, is just continue to educate and say, hey, like this is going to be a problem. We are going to see fake news, you know, and whoever ends up being the nominees for both sides, and I think we all know who it's gonna be, assuming death or incarceration, you know, it's essentially an important thing to say, hey, understand we are gonna see a lot of fake everything on everybody. And so we've got to make sure that we are stepping back and we are creating that filter. Look at what the courts do. They don't just accept evidence. Evidence has to be vetted. Chain of custody has to be proven. And so that video that you see that that really like, yeah, I didn't like that guy and now I really don't like that guy. Okay, is that really true then? And that is the education we need to have. Finland did an excellent job on this in their 2017 elections when they had Russian disinformation all over. They did a nationwide push on education and were able to essentially effectively excise that and the party that was being backed by the Russians didn't win anything or won very little. But the point is, is that it is possible out there. As a nation as large and diverse as the United States, it's much more difficult, but it is possible. It's just really hard. Yeah, like your point about the flat earthers, contrary to all the evidence, the complexity it would take to actually go and create a world in which that made sense, they still believe it. Right. And you have the asymmetry of information that happens too, even in just your yeah. terrestrial broadcasts of radio and television. If you're in the middle of nowhere, mm -hmm. you probably only have AM. AM's all owned by Clear Channel. Clear Channel's a very clear like bent to their political leanings and the people, the hosts that right. they put on. And so even your feedback mechanisms are gonna be filtered by your geography and right. the media landscape and all that. So educating with what? Like, how do we hit a maximum number of people to get them to that point where they understand that like, hey, hold on, critical reasoning would tell you that that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like, you know, the Pizzagate thing, you, you have a lot of these instances where it's like, how could you possibly believe that? But people do. And it's because they're getting right. that information filtered through a lens that's, to your point, right. often self-reinforcing. Right. Well, and to that point, people have a tendency to believe without evidence. Yes. It's akin to, let's say, faith. What I'm, what I'm saying here is if you're looking at it from that perspective, if you're believing without evidence, if you're believing without reason, but you feel it, you know it, that's a hard place to start in terms of just having an education with that person. One of the things I talk about quite a bit, um, whether it's in my writing or on stage or on my radio show, is herd immunity for cybersecurity. Mm. And that's essentially what we are looking at. We are all interconnected in some way, shape or form via email, via messaging, uh, you know, Zoom meetings. I mean, we're sitting here, you know, recording, you know, I've never met you. We instantly get together and we've got video, we've got audio, we've got all of these things that allow us to do that. So we're all interconnected, which means you have the ability right now to send me something malicious or I to you. True. And so if we are able to educate people on how we're interconnected by all these platforms, including social media and everything else, then we can start to create a filter of 
of distrust. My first TED talk was on that. It was called Trust Sucks, interestingly <laughs> enough. So you know where I'm coming from, right? And we need trust in our lives. We can't have a society without it. We're seeing what happens when trust breaks down. But we have in our technological lives to create a filter of distrust. And I think in our political lives, especially in the, the land of the chat GPTs, we have to create a filter of distrust to information we are getting about the body politic. And it's one of those things that I just don't see preached nearly enough. And so for my little corner of the world, I'm, I'm trying to shout that out as best I can. But that's where we're at right now. And if cooler heads can prevail and more rational heads can prevail, you're always going to have that subset of people that just believe, you know, that Tupac and Biggie are living at the Illuminati Hotel on Mars. You're going to have those people, <laughs> right? But but you're also you're also going to have people that can come back into the center that realize, hey, wait a second, I went a little nuts here and let's let's bring it back. And so I, I think those are the people that we're trying to reach more than than anybody else. As you were saying that, I was thinking about democracy and the mechanism of it is based on there being a balance between any extreme ideology and the average right. and finding the common ground between them. Sure. And your point earlier about it's broken down when we have two deadlock groups that don't agree on the fundamental principles often. That doesn't mean that democracy is not working. In fact, it means that it is. Mm -hmm. You have two extreme ideologies mm -hmm. and now nothing's happening because neither one of them can get what they want. Right. As I'm saying it, I'm like, God, that's kind of terrible in a sense too, but it's what it was designed to do. Mm -hmm. The problem lies when you end up with any extreme becoming dominant, becoming you know more than 50% of the electorate. Right. And that's part of it, too. I mean, think about where we're at. I get that question all the time. I was in Australia a couple of weeks ago speaking to an Australian audience. And outside of cybersecurity, the only thing they wanted to talk about was U.S. politics. Like, how on earth did you guys go this nuts? <laughs> you know, and it's an interesting conversation to have with those that are from the outside looking in because they're seeing potential changes in society. And as I look at this, I contemplate, OK, what is going on here? Think about where we are now as opposed to 50 years ago. Outside of the media landscape and 24-hour news and, you know, news is now a for-profit business Indeed. when historically yeah. it never has been in the United States. You know, I think that was a huge problem. But if you're looking at it, one of the things that we have ramped up instantly is instant gratification. So think about, you know, any kid, they're all addicted to tablets, et cetera, et cetera. You want to get kids downstairs for dinner on time, cut the Wi-Fi off. You think a bomb went off in the house. And that is something that I think speaks to all of us as we have these addictions. We want these things now. We don't want to wait. Amazon yeah. can deliver in two hours. They better deliver in two hours. Four hours is too longer for me. And so what does that talk about in terms of governance? I want it and I want it now. Well, when you don't live in an authoritarian country, you're not going to get it now because everybody has to come to some kind of consensus to move the ball forward. And so if you're looking at the concepts of, let's say, protections that we have constitutionally here in the United States, if somebody's looking at it saying, well, I can just circumvent the Constitution and get it done because I think it's the right thing to do and I want it now, now we've got a problem. And so that is something that I think that we are grasping with right now in the era of instant everything that we have to. I mean, I think, you know, you're probably old enough to remember you had to go to Blockbuster and maybe they ran out of that video and that sucked, but that's what it was. Now I can hit boop, 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 stream and I'm done. And if I don't have it, I can go and I can buy it instantly and I can stream it instantly. And so we are looking at a society that is radically different. And so what is not keeping up with the instantaneousness? politics. And that is really ticking off, I think, a lot of people. And by virtue of that, I think that's part of the reason why we're here right now. Nick, it was a pleasure. I really loved it. And I will reach out again. Yeah, yeah, please do. Please do. Have a good one.
And that's a wrap for this episode of TechTastic. I want to thank you personally for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Until then, keep exploring and stay curious.